Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for uh, the reading, Melvin. Let me, uh, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you just for your word, and we thank you, um, you know, just for uh, the life of Paul and uh, the struggles that he faced. And the one thing that this letter shows us is, um, you know, life is not neat, and uh, a life following Jesus is not neat, and it's not easy, and there's conflict, and um, there's complications, and all of these things. But uh, we, we pray, God, that you would uh, give us eyes to see um, beyond, uh, I guess, the circumstances as, as Paul does in this very passage and to see spiritual realities and to um, have a deeper sense of this uh, gospel message that he proclaimed and that we long to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in a series going through Second Corinthians. And uh, as I've said, it's, it's one of the more personal letters, I think, that we've seen written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and one of the reasons why it's so personal is uh, Paul is in the middle of this conflict with the Corinthians where the Corinthians, they're questioning his, his apostolic ministry. And the reason they're questioning it is because they're saying things like, well, Paul, you don't have that much influence. Paul, you don't have that much money. You don't have rhetorical gifts. Your life is filled with so much hardship and suffering. And so how can you be a messenger of God when this is what your life is like? And therefore, in this section, we're in the middle of a section where Paul is kind of presenting a defense of his uh, apostolic ministry, but he's not defending it for the reasons why uh, typically people would defend something. It's not done out of ego. Uh, he doesn't really care about his personal name, but the reason why he is defending his ministry is because uh, the rejection or the reasons for why this congregation is rejecting his apostolic ministry um, it's kind of tantamount to rejecting the implications of the gospel because his life and the message of the gospel uh, are so aligned. And they don't see that it's intimately tied to the content of his preaching. And therefore, when he presents his defense, it's not kind of like, oh, you know, I'm such an awesome person. But really, he's laying out a, a theological defense 
and uh, laying out the implications of the cross, uh, which challenges the cultural values of Corinthian society, and saying, uh, you know, this is what uh, a life of, in, of the cross, this is the implications of the cross and the values that uh, you are adopting are not consistent with the message of the cross. So uh, that's what we're looking at. Now, last week, we, we looked at what drives Paul, and he says he no longer lives for himself, but he lives for the one who raised him. And the very thing that drives him to live in such a manner is the love of Christ. And unfortunately, I didn't get to the latter part of that passage, which is uh, also very important, where he talks about this ministry of reconciliation that he has been given from God, whereby God is reconciling the word to himself in Christ. And Paul is proclaiming this message of reconciliation to the Corinthians. And I thought what was kind of interesting about that passage is, you know, given the context of uh, Paul's relationship with this church, you would expect him to say something like, be reconciled to me, right? Our relationship is not good, so be reconciled to me. But Paul didn't say that to them. Rather, what he says to them is, he says, be reconciled to God. Uh, because by rejecting Paul's ministry for the reasons that they do, it means that something is dysfunctional. Something is broken uh, with respect to their relationship with God. And he's saying, be reconciled to God. There is this uh, Ugandan uh, Catholic theologian uh, named Emmanuel Kattengol, and he has this beautiful phrase. He says, reconciliation is God's language for a broken world. And in this case, reconciliation is the language to repair broken relationships between God and the Corinthians, between the Corinthians and Paul, and perhaps even within the Corinthian church itself because there's so much fraction and division. And I only mentioned that previous passage to give you a little bit of context as to where Paul is coming from when he writes this passage because I think he is still thinking about reconciliation here. And what we're going to see here is reconciliation also requires open hearts. There is a difference in philosophy that exists in different spheres about having an open system versus a closed system. Uh, for example, uh, you have the Apple uh, operating system and you have the Android operating system and there's a philosophical difference between the two. Uh, now, I'm not a tech expert, so if I get some of the details wrong, forgive me. But from what I understand, uh, the way Apple thinks and employs, uh, they employ uh, a closed system in their operating system, which means they have more control over, for example, which apps make it into their ecosystem. Uh, there's more limitations and there's more restrictions on the kinds of software that is allowed into their ecosystem. And their argument for a closed system is they want to ensure that there's the greatest amount of compatibility with the apps in their operating system. Uh, they think it'll uh, generate a better experience. But the downside of that is Apple exerts a lot of control, and you can't customize certain things, and therefore uh, some apps uh, will not make it into Apple's ecosystem. Android, on the other hand, has a little bit of a different philosophy. Their system is open, and it means that there are less restrictions and less limitations. And the benefit of having Android phones is that it is open to outsiders, to outside software developers, which ultimately translates into uh, greater flexibility, greater ability to customize uh, uh, based on the user's preferences and desires. And uh, <clears throat> I was once like listening to Tim Keller do a Q&A and people were like asking different questions and I don't know, somehow uh, the phone that he uses came up and in a joking manner, uh, you know, 
Tim Keller uses an Android phone, and he says because it's more Christian. And uh, I think he was obviously making a joke, so don't take that endorsement too seriously. But I think what he meant is, you know, an open system is much more consistent with uh, Christianity, with the values of the gospel, than a closed system. If you were to look around in the world, <clears throat> there are always different approaches with respect to openness and closedness, right? Uh, you want maybe certain systems to be open, and maybe you want certain systems to be closed. So, for example, uh, if you look at the way buildings are designed and the entire interior design of buildings, some are more open and some are more closed. Uh, a hospital, for example, I think what you could say is a closed system where uh, hospitals have these individual rooms uh, for patients and there's a door. And uh, the reason for that is so patients can have some privacy as they, as they heal in hospitals. Uh, apartment buildings, uh, the places where uh, we live, have closed systems as well. We, we have doors, and not only do we have doors, but we have doors that lock, and we lock our doors because we don't want people to be able to see into our apartments and see what we're doing or have the ability to walk in and out whenever they want. Uh, we close our doors because we want some kind of barrier or separation from the outside world, and uh, people can only come in by way of invitation if we, if we allow people to come in. On the other hand, there are uh, interior designs that are much more open. So I think a lot of companies probably, maybe this was pre-pandemic, but uh, a lot of companies put a lot of thought into how do we want to design our office to facilitate the kind of culture that we want to facilitate. Uh, I go to a WeWork uh, uh, office every day, and you know WeWork is uh, really interesting. It's got this like really big and open feel. And you can kind of go anywhere and sit anywhere. There are these big tables that you can sit with, and anybody can join you at these tables. Uh, sometimes people are just having their conference calls or their Zoom meetings right out in the open, and you can, you can hear everything that's going on, and people are talking, uh, and you hear it. It's open to everybody. And even, you know, they have like these uh, small conference rooms that you can rent, and even these rooms, even though uh, they have a door that's closed, uh, it's a, a, the entire wall is a window, so people from the outside can look in, and if you're having a meeting, people can see what you're doing. Uh, there are times where I meet with, uh, you know, some people, and uh, we end up praying in these rooms, and, you know, everybody on the outside, they can see us praying. Uh, it's a transparent room, and the only rooms uh, that are actually closed to everybody are, like, these tiny uh, phone booths, and you're supposed to go in there if you want some privacy, and so... Uh, people who are making private calls, you go into the phone booth, you close the phone booth, and it's understood that you're not allowed to go in there. Nobody's supposed to disturb you while you're in there. But WeWork, they devote very little square footage compared to the rest of the square footage to these kinds of spaces. Most of the spaces are open. Why? Because it's consistent with their values. They want to create a sense of community, and therefore there's great openness. Now, if I were to ask you what kind of system should a community of believers be defined by, I think most of you know that right, uh, Christianity churches should lean towards being an open system. Uh, we should be a people that have these open hearts because God first opened his heart to us, and uh, when we were still his enemies, he still opened his heart to us, and he brought us in even though we had the stink of sin on us, right? But even though we know that, we don't always have a heart that is open to others for the same reasons why we like our Apple phones or I have an Apple phone, so for the same reasons I like my Apple phone. Uh, a closed heart 
uh, gives us more of a sense of control so that we can do what we want. We can allow the people that we want to come in. A closed heart gives us less opportunity to interface with incompatible people. Uh, and as a consumer of Apple phone, I like a closed system because it, it's much easier. And while things like compatibility and ease are things that might be good for a consumer product, they aren't exactly things or words that should be associated with a community of believers who have been changed by the gospel because uh, the church is ultimately not a consumer product. Moreover, there is no greater incompatibility, incompatibility issue between than the one that's between a holy God and sinful man, right? Uh, God still opened his heart to us. There is no greater difficulty than for Jesus to go and to die upon uh, the cross in, in a very uh, shameful way, but he did it. Why? Out of love for us. And therefore, if the love of Christ given to us through the gospel means anything to us, one of the implications of that is it ought to give us hearts that are open to extend love the love that we have been given, to pursue relationships of reconciliation in spite of difficulties and incompatibilities. But what if we struggle to have open hearts, which I think we probably do. What does that mean? Well, if you look at verse 1, this is what Paul says. He says, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, you got to keep in mind, these are people who have received the gospel. They've heard Paul preach the gospel. They have uh, uh, repented, and they've become believers. That's why Paul calls the Corinthians that they are a church, right? But even though they may have received it, uh, what he's implying here is they haven't received it in its fullness because they aren't living out its implications. They, they've received it in vain, right? Uh, they're not working towards uh, reconciling with Paul. They're not... Uh, what they're doing is they're embracing these false teachers that have come in uh, because of these uh, teachers, their, their gifts and status and influence. Uh, they've adopted worldly values over kingdom values or over cross-centered values, and their life and community doesn't reflect what it's supposed to be given that they have received the grace of God in their lives. And so what Paul's implying here is they've received the God, grace of God in vain. And then Paul, he quotes from Isaiah 49, and in verse 2, he says this, In a favorable time I listened to you, but in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And, you know, when I read that, I'm like, uh, why is Paul doing that? Why is he quoting from Isaiah 49? I didn't really understand the connection between what he's saying before and what comes after. Uh, but I was reading one of the commentaries. And they were actually saying it's, it's really interesting because Paul's circumstances were similar to Isaiah's circumstances. Uh, so in Isaiah 49, Isaiah, what he's doing, he's, he's kind of presenting his credentials to these uh, exiles that God called him to be the prophet, and God is calling him to reconcile Israel to be a light to the nations so that God's salvation may now go to the ends of the earth. But when Isaiah delivers this message, people didn't receive it. Uh, so Isaiah says in that chapter, oh, I've labored in vain, right? Paul's probably making this comparison between uh, Isaiah's ministry and his ministry in the sense that he's, he's implying the Corinthians are facing the same uh, dangers that these uh, exiles who rejected Isaiah's ministry faced. Paul's saying you're in danger of not fully hearing from God 
because you are rejecting my ministry for the reasons that you're rejecting it, right? Except here, the stakes are higher now. Uh, we know more now. Now is a day of salvation, whereas Isaiah was proclaiming it uh, to be future-oriented. Jesus has come. Now is a time that Isaiah was talking about. Now is the favorable time. God has extended grace to these exiled sinners, which is us, but he's saying to the Corinthians, you're receiving this grace of God in vain because you're choosing to drink deeply from the world. and You're adopting the world's values. Uh, sometimes we hear the gospel, and I think, I think we can say we're encouraged by it, but I think we can also say sometimes it doesn't really do anything to us, right? Uh, it, maybe it inspires us, but then we kind of look at our lives and we're like, eh, right? The way we think, the way we act, uh, it feels the same. Uh, it doesn't compel us to live less for ourselves, and it doesn't compel us to have a higher regard for people, right? Uh, have you ever considered that perhaps that means we're not receiving the grace of God in the manner that we ought to be receiving it. Uh, and I guess here's what I mean. You know, we just had communion for the first time uh, a couple weeks ago. And one of the reasons why I like having communion is there's an element to it where it forces you to be a participant. So uh, when we receive the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder for us, like we're receiving God's grace and we're being reminded of uh, the gospel through, through the elements. Uh, but in order to receive the elements, you, you have to actively participate. You have to examine your heart. You have to examine your actions. You have to examine your thoughts. You have to examine how your relationship is uh, not only to God but to your own sin. You, uh, and then after doing that, you have to actually get up and receive the elements, receive the grace of God, so to speak. And on the one hand, we're, we're like beggars, and all we can do is receive, but there's a, this kind of an active step that we have to take in order to receive it. We have to put ourselves in God's uh, story of redemption and be willing to receive it. Uh, I know preaching is important. Certainly preaching is important, and it's not disconnected uh, from the sacraments because both are ministries of the word. Uh, but, you know, I do wonder sometimes if it's kind of too easy to be passive listeners uh, when, when we hear a sermon. Uh, it doesn't lead us to become these active participants in the gospel story, whereas I think communion does a little bit more so. And if you think about the gospel as a story, the story of redemption, you know, knowing that story is one thing, uh, but locating ourselves in that story is another. And I think that's what we're called to do. We're supposed to find ourselves in the story and be participants in the story of redemption, and, and that's what it means to fully receive the grace of God. And I was thinking about, you know, when it comes to stories, who are the kinds of people who are the most impacted by, by good stories? And I think it's actually probably the actors. I don't know, maybe it's the directors and so forth, but I think it's people who are involved in these stories because the job of an actor is they're supposed to locate themselves within the story that they're reading. They're supposed to find these points of connection to the stories that they're trying to portray. And I think inevitably... Uh, I imagine it changes them to a degree, these stories. And we're not supposed to be these audience members of just kind of, you know, hearing a nice story, uh, the gospel story, but we're supposed to be more like actors where we're supposed to find connection points to God's story of redemption. And the story of redemption, it's supposed to draw us in to the point where it actually does something to us. It impacts us. It changes our hearts. And I think that's a little bit of what it means to receive the grace of God in full, rather than in vain. 
And Paul reminds us, now is a favorable time. Now is a time where we, we know the fullness of that story. Now is a time where we have the opportunity to locate ourselves in that story because it's no longer, I guess, just act one. Uh, but now because of Christ, we have the conclusion and we know uh, how God's story ends up. And so what happens when we receive the grace of God in full? And here I'm going to look to what Paul says and Paul gets very personal about his own life and his own ministry. So let me just read a few of the things that he says. Uh, he says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. And what Paul's doing here is he's, he's commending his ministry. I mean, you get the, the sense of he's defending his ministry here, uh, with, but the way he's defending himself is with all the hardships that he faced in ministry. Uh, being a, a herald of the gospel, being a preacher of the gospel doesn't make life easier, and in Paul's case, it made his life much more difficult. But his point is this, that as someone who has experienced all kinds of hardship, his suffering turns out to be a point of commendation, not condemnation, but commendation, because what it does is it makes room for uh, God, people to see God's power at work. For people to see, it's not actually about uh, the Apostle Paul or his other missionary colleagues, but ultimately, it is about the power of God at work, which is displayed through his weakness, through his suffering, through his failures. And it also reveals that he has a sincerity in ministry that's characterized by uh, a certain ethical standard. Uh, we tend to live in a culture that cares uh, more about the bottom line, but here Paul reminds us it's not just about the bottom line that matters, but the integrity of the ministry also matters a great deal. And so is ministry done with purity? Is it done in reliance of the Holy Spirit? Is it done out of a genuine love? Uh, is there room for the power of God here? Well, it all matters. And then he continues to write and he says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. And I love uh, this section in particular because Paul is talking about the difference between seeing with our eyes of flesh, seeing what's, uh, what's on the surface, versus sp seeing the spiritual reality of things. Right? In the previous passage, he talks about walking by faith, not by sight. And while Paul is seen as an imposture, lacking in influence, poor, as someone who has nothing, he also knows the reality of a life in Christ means that he's none of those things. He's true. He is known. He is rich in Christ. He possesses everything because of Christ. In other words, the grace of God is so abundant that the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places, a la Ephesians 1, it has filled Paul to such a degree that he can not only endure all of this hardship, but more relevant to this passage, he can now open his heart. He can open his heart to the very people who are attacking him, right? These Corinthians. How do you open your heart to such people? How do you make yourself uh, vulnerable to such people when your sense of security is, is so deep and when your sense of security is so deep that you know nobody can hurt you, even these Corinthians, um, 
Paul's able to open his heart. Why don't we open our hearts to other people, right? Because we've gone through pains and hurts in our past relationships, and it's kind of like a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism. We put up all these walls, and we don't want to be hurt again, right? That's kind of how uh, humans work. Uh, Paul puts himself out there to these Corinthians. He opens his heart to them, and they reject him, and he continues to open his heart to them. Uh, Why? I think it's because he has received the grace of God, the fullness of the grace of God, and it gives him that kind of sense of acceptance and security and deep love uh, that we all long for but we find in the wrong places, uh, and he, therefore he feels so secure he can open his heart to them. I think that's where we need to draw our impetus for opening our hearts. You know, it's, it's not about whether we, we like the person. It's not about whether uh, they're useful to us, which is you know, why New Yorkers like networking with others. It's not whether we click with them. And, you know, it's not even that they're good people. Uh, Arguably, you could say these Corinthians are not the greatest people, right? If that's how we determine who our hearts are open to, then we end up being uh, no different than people who haven't received the grace of God. Um, The word translated as vain, (coughs) by the way, uh, it's a word that can be also translated as empty. It's the same word Paul uses in Philippians 2 when he talks about how Jesus emptied himself through, this, through the incarnation. Jesus emptied himself so that we might be filled. And you know what a tragedy would be to, if, uh, <coughs> excuse me, if we receive it as though it were empty. Uh, it would be a little bit like, you know, filling up a rocket with a whole bunch of fuel and never launching it into space. Uh, you know how much fuel a rocket uses? 4.4 million pounds. You know how much uh, oil costs these days? <laughs> Think about how much 4.4 million pounds of rocket fuel would cost. And imagine filling up this rocket and never launching it into space. That would be a tragic waste. Jesus emptied himself so that we might be filled. That means we have hope and joy and peace and security. That means we know love, mercy, forgiveness, grace. That means we know what it is for someone to open their heart to us in profound ways. That means we have reconciliation with God through Christ. That means we are no longer considered to be enemies of God, but now he welcomes us in. Uh, You know, that phrase, stink of sin, came out, but I kind of like that phrase, even though we have the stink of sin on us, right? And the question for us, for us to consider and ponder, are we receiving that grace in full and launching into space, right? Are we opening our hearts wide to others? Or are we kind of receiving it in vain, right? Being, uh, I guess, having all this fuel and not using it to launch. Um, Now, I don't know about you. Let me open my heart to you for a minute. (laughs) Uh, I think you all know, uh, I, I try to be like, I try to keep it real, um, just in terms of like faith and Christianity and things like that. This is something that I struggle with too, opening my heart to people. I would say, actually, this is something I'm struggling with right now. And that's why this passage was of such interest to me. Uh, I tell you, you know, I, I meet with a couple pastors for the sake of accountability. And uh, what I was sharing with them is like, I, I, I said, I think something is not right with my heart. And the reason I think something is not right with my heart is because I feel like my heart for people has just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, I don't know if any of you can relate to that or feel that. 
Uh, maybe the pandemic has something to do with it. I, I have no idea. But either way, uh, I know I can't stay here. Uh, I know my heart has to grow and grow and be more and more open to, to other people. Uh, and as I was reflecting on it, you know, uh, I could say, well, yeah, the pandemic's changing things and um, we're going to start meeting and uh, hopefully, right? Uh, there's always that qualifier, hopefully. <laughs> uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think I know the problem. I need to receive the grace of God uh, more fully into my heart. Uh, I need to reflect and meditate on the grace of God and God's open heart to me. And I, I know we've had such a, a couple of strange few years, and I wonder if all of us have maybe got into this mindset or developed certain habits that made us a little bit more close to people, uh, especially since we've gone through a season where you know, people started to become potential threats uh, as carriers of the virus, and they've become potential threats to our health, right? It's such, a, it's such a weird thing to go through. And I wonder how much of that has kind of formed us in terms of now how we relate to people. But I go back to this, you know, the, the church, the body of believers, not the church as like Good News Church, but uh, the people of God, we're not supposed to be a closed system. We're not Apple here, right? <laughs> we're supposed to be more like Android. We're supposed to uh, open our hearts. We're supposed to be an open system. Uh, we're supposed to be full of people with open hearts because we worship a God who has opened his heart to us and welcomed us and reconciled us to himself. And <coughs> I just wonder, um, you know, what would it look like, uh, you know, what would it look like for everybody here to have hearts that are open, right? That would be amazing. That would be fantastic. I think uh, God could use people with open hearts uh, in amazing ways. And I take it to the next step. What would it look like if all the believers in New York City had open hearts? With all those lonely people out there, with all those broken people out there, <laughs> right, who need to know the grace of God, that would be amazing. I, I, I'm guessing, I could be the only one who's struggling with it, and if so, um, I guess that's what it is, but <laughs> I imagine maybe others are struggling with that too, not just here, but all across the city. Uh, now is a time, is a favorable time. It's not the right time now because we're coming out of the pandemic. It's the right time now because now is the favorable time that Isaiah prophesied about. Uh, this is the day of salvation. This is the time to have open hearts. Uh, this is the time where God is calling people to himself, where God has this ministry of reconciliation in the gospel, where God wants to draw people to himself uh, in profound ways, and we get to be the broken vessels, right, a la a previous passage, jars of clay. We get to be the broken vessels to carry that message. Um, but I would say, at the end of the day, foundationally, we need open hearts. And even more foundational to that, we need to receive the grace of God in full. So, let me, let me pray for us. God, we, um, you know, I think we're always, um, we always find ourselves in uh, these moments where, um, you know, where we have the option to, I guess, dig deeper into ourselves and, to do what's comfortable for us. And um, 
these moments where you know, we could stretch ourselves and uh, kind of come out of our comfort zones and do things that are not necessarily desirable to us. And I don't know, at least for myself, I feel like um, too often these days uh, I'm doing the former and not the latter. And too often these days uh, my heart is too small um, for the, you know, the people around me, uh, but even, I guess, in a general sense, uh, the people in New York. And we, you know, we read all this news, uh, a lot of bad news. Um, we read about a lot of crime uh, that's happening. And, you know, I'll admit the first thought we have is like, oh, I don't want to be anywhere near that. And I want to be as far away from those kind of things as possible. Um, and maybe even within us, in our hearts, uh, we create these barriers and these walls and we begin to now view everybody as uh, potential threats that can harm us and hurt us and inconvenience us and get in our way and get in, our in the way of our agendas. Uh, but God, you remind us that um, for those who have received the grace of God and who have known uh, the open-heartedness that you had, that even when we were enemies to you. Uh, you opened your heart to us and you invited us in. And God, we want to, um, I guess we want to stop playing uh, Christianity, uh, but we want uh, genuine faith. We want to genuinely receive the fullness of that grace. We want it to be poured out to us and um, you know, I hope uh, none of us here interprets that as we need to draw strength from ourselves and we need to will ourselves to be better uh, because we're going to fail in that. But God, we need you um, to pour yourself out to us. Uh, we need your power. Uh, we need just more of your grace. Uh, we need the things that some of us have heard week after week for many, many, many years. Uh, so much so that we can predict maybe what even the sermon's going to be about. Um, we need more than that. We need to locate ourselves within the story of redemption and be changed by it. And so I pray, God, that your spirit would, would fill us. Uh, those of us here today would fill our church and we would have open hearts um, to those around us, to those who you call us to minister to, to those who you call us to serve, to those who you call us to love. In Jesus' name we pray.